For sure, there are a lot of physicians that graduate and they want to practice medicine and that's all they want to do. And that's good. We need those people to practice medicine and to see the patients and to have someone else who can't do the medicine, do the business side of it, just inherently makes sense from an efficiency point of view. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the program, I'm joined by Dr. Rhonda Zwingerman. Dr. Zwingerman is a fellow at the Royal Surgeons of Canada in both OBGYN and REI. She's a full-time professor of OBGYN at the University of Toronto. She is also a member of the Department of OBGYN at Mount Sinai Hospital. Dr. Zwingerman pursued her undergraduate and medical degree at Queen's University. She went on to complete her residency training in OBGYN at the University of Alberta. She then moved back to Toronto, obtained a master's degree in health services research, and then pursued her REI fellowship at Mount Sinai Fertility, where she currently practices. Dr. Swingerman, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much for having me. I'm and uh, sorry, I'll just say I'm not a full professor, of course, at this stage. So assistant professor well thank you for the humility and clarification we wouldn't want our listening audience that that would, that would be quite the it. achievement wouldn't it i remember the first time that you and i spoke was at cfas and if i'm remembering correctly it was 2016 because it was in That's toronto right. and for me it was a pretty enlightening conversation because it tuned me into one of the patterns that i've seen across the field with hiring doctors and doctors coming out of fellowship uh, on one hand, retiring doctors that I know, or I should say just recruiting doctors. Maybe they are within five years of retirement, or maybe they have 15, 20 more years left in their career, but everyone is having uh, difficulty recruiting new doctors, it seems. And when I spoke to you, I think, were you still in fellowship at that time? Yes. And we were talking about where you were going to go afterwards and were you going to open up private practice and or did you want to take over someone else's? And one of the things that you had mentioned was after so many years of medical school and training and in your case, a master's degree and then residency and fellowship that there's so much risk for someone who has gone through all of that to then take on an entrepreneurial endeavor. Am I paraphrasing that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of issues at play for new grads. And, you know, I've listened to some of your previous guests talk about what some of those issues are south of the border and some are transferable up here in Canada and some are different. I think one of the things that we probably spoke about was that there is not a lot of business training in medical training. And I know that's something that you feel kind of strongly about. And I also feel 
like that's missing from the curriculum of young doctors today, uh, really at all levels of training. And it does make it harder to envision yourself in the role of running a business when you don't have any training or, you know, experience or mentorship and how to do that. And when you're going out and getting your first job when you're already in your mid-30s, which is obviously a lot later than most other people in the workforce. So I think that's part of it. I think the other consideration in terms of the, the landscape for new REIs, which is somewhat unique here, is the, the funding for fertility treatment, right? So Ontario is, is a unique situation, and the way that the government pays for some of the IVF services has really put a moratorium on opening new clinics as a, an unintended consequence, if you will, because they've tied the funding the ability to provide funded IVF services and IUI services to existing clinics. Let's give some context for that because this is probably two or three years old at this that uh, Ontario came in with uh, Just, funding for IVF. It had not existed for IVF previously in the province and there's a certain either cycle limit or, or dollar limit per clinic, is that correct, that the province provides? Yeah, so the province started, so obviously healthcare insurance is provided by the province, by a single payer, uh, which is the province. And starting in December of 2015, they kind of created a pot of money that would specifically go towards funding IUI and IVF. And every person gets one cycle, one complete cycle of IVF. And they've basically distributed that pot of money amongst the existing clinics. So it is by the person, because if I'm remembering correctly, in the beginning, some clinics were doing a lottery system, some clinics were offering it to new patients, and that was a challenge of how clinics were going to distribute. So is it by the individual now and not allotted to the clinic? So the money is still allotted per clinic, but then each patient only gets to have one funded IVF cycle. And this has put a moratorium on new clinics in Ontario. Why do you suppose? Well, you can open a new clinic, but if you aren't eligible to receive a piece of that pie, it's going to be nearly impossible to attract patients because people don't want to pay for IVF if they can have their first cycle be paid for. And same with IUI, right? So it's it's difficult, if not nearly impossible, to set up a new practice where you don't have a piece of that that funded pie. And right now, as far as I'm concerned, there's not a good mechanism to reallocate that money or to you know change that. Now I expect eventually the government will have to evolve and deal with that situation. But for now, it has made it hard for new REIs, and that's that's part of the landscape. I think. Part of the other landscape is things that are a little bit more generalizable that you've talked about, right? Different clinics are being bought up by bigger companies. And just the the need for REIs matching the demand in terms of geography of the country is also fairly complex. Like the big cities are fairly saturated and yet the smaller cities have a hard time recruiting, which I'm sure is not unique to Canada. No, that's very much the case in the United States as well, which I think is going to become another podcast episode because we could have an episode just about that particular phenomenon in access to care because it is becoming 
a real access to care issue. When I speak to people completing their REI fellowship, almost universally speaking, the only ones that are going back to markets like upstate New York where I live or Missouri or or Ohio or uh, a lot of the interior of the country or just outside of the large cosmopolitan cities are almost exclusively those folks that are from there that want to go back home to be close by their families. But the recruitment power of those clinics in San Francisco and New York and Boston and Los Angeles is much higher than it is in a lot of the smaller markets in the country. And of course, that's a medicine problem more generally and not not a unique to REI problem. So yes, I agree. That's probably its own podcast for sure. And, you know, one of the other things that I see is that so many people coming out of fellowship have job offers real early on. I just got back from the Pacific Coast Reproductive Society meeting. By the time this podcast episode airs, it might be a a couple months after, but almost all of the fellows there had offers by their second year in the U.S. It's a three-year fellowship in Canada. It's only two, right? Right, but our, our residency is five years instead of four, so, so it, e- it equals out. The, the, the total time equals out, but by its second year, almost everyone had signed with a recruiting clinic, and including some in discussions in their first year of fellowship. So clinics now are reaching out to people who are in residency that may or may not go into REI fellowship and trying to build those relationships now and recruit people that haven't even chosen REI yet because the supply is so small relative to the demand. So when you're thinking back to your last year or two of fellowship, did you have a, a job already where you? Yeah, that doesn't ring true to the experiences I think of, of myself and my co-fellows here, at least. I certainly feel like it's more been the onus on the fellows to to reach out and contact the clinics to see what opportunities are available. Certainly there are, like the landscape is just very small in Canada. There's not that many clinics. A lot of cities have one. And so most people with their ear to the ground know what cities are looking and what cities aren't and what opportunities may be available and not, but it certainly doesn't feel like fellows are being proactively approached a lot of the time and you know eagerly recruited so that would be a nice feeling but how many REI fellowship programs are there in Canada there are I have to count them there's for sure less than 10 and some of those will be French speaking programs so maybe there's maybe there's 10 REIs there's probably about 10 grads every year 10 grads every year. Okay. So in the United States, which is a much larger country, there's about 40. Right. And so uh, relatively speaking, maybe there are more, maybe there are more REIs coming out of fellowship at a per capita level in Canada. And so you heard it listening audience, the Canadian clinics are sleeping on recruiting their fellas. There might be an additional little pot for you to explore up here in Canada. So you chose your position. Was it because you were training at Mount Sinai? You liked the program and you wanted to continue there? 
And part of it was the academic aspect. So where I work now is affiliated with the university and it's where the fellowship program is and the residency program. And there's an expectation of research productivity. And for me, that's something that I wanted that obviously uh, appeals to a subset of REI grads, but not the majority in terms of wanting an academic position. And so that that was a big part of it, obviously, like for personal reasons, which is almost always the case. I wanted to stay in Toronto, where I'm from. And, you know, the benefit of having trained somewhere is you go into a job with your eyes wide open about the group of people you're working with and what the job's going to be like. So it just seemed like it was a good fit for me. So I'm very, very glad that it all worked out so well. That helps take away some of the surprises because one can never know for sure what it's like to work with a team or in a culture or within an organization until they actually do. And that would be a big advantage. And one of the tenets that I took away from when you and I first spoke and that I've been exploring a lot more with my writing and with talking to clients and creating content for the field is that I don't necessarily think it's a fair criticism of younger doctors or of people leaving fellowship to say that they are not entrepreneurial or that they're less entrepreneurial. Maybe there are arguments for that, but what I see is a much different landscape than the previous generation. And if I'm, if I'm calling the previous generation, those that were part of that wave that started REI practices in the mid and late nineties that left the health systems and universities in the mid nineties, opened their own practice. Because what I see there is inheriting the old model of what a healthcare practice is, uh, which is from the mid 20th century of there's a doctor who is the business owner who hires a practice manager who runs the practice and that's it. And it is a business because it's a for-profit entity and there are private individuals that own it, but it is not the same schema of entrepreneurship that exists today with private equity and venture capital. And I think that has completely changed the risk. And I think that's what you were saying when you were analyzing that risk. And I think that's what many young doctors are seeing as well. No, I agree. I think that the landscape has shifted both in terms of what it means to run a practice, but also in terms of the practice of medicine and the complexity of the medicine itself that we're doing right, compared to REI a few decades ago. And so what it would mean to actually run a full service, to open your own full service, you know, ART facility and the number of people you would need and the number of technologies you would need to be able to offer to a certain standard I think is also just really ballooned in complexity compared to, like you were saying in the 90s, what it would what it would have taken to open a clinic, right? So I think there's been changes in the landscape in many ways. Being an entrepreneur is very difficult and it's a rare talent set to begin with. In parallel, you have another rare talent set by definition, 10 new fertility doctors coming out in Canada, 40 to 50 in the United States per year. That's rare, you know, 1,100 board certified REIs in the United States. So you're having two very rare qualifiers in parallel. And I think every time, you know, that I'm swamped with owning my business, I think, what if I also had to do three balls a year on top of this? And, and I- that's the case for them. I, and the other thing is, 
you know, it serves you well as a physician to be very risk averse because you want your doctor to be very risk averse. And yet as an entrepreneur, you need to be very comfortable with risk. And I have not yet figured out how those, like those two things don't comfortably coexist in that many people, right? Even people who, you know, like me have a significant interest in the business side of medicine. I constantly want to learn more about the business side of medicine and I want to engage in that part of my professional life. But I still find that because of all my training and because of inherently who I am, that risk aversion makes it much harder to think about taking big leaps into an entrepreneurial endeavor. So I think that's also part of the issue. That is such a keen observation because I see those two tenets in conflict with one another very often. And I see it taking the form of not wanting to post a Facebook live video because it doesn't look aesthetically perfect or, well, we're not going to do this because the logo is on the right and we won't change it until it's on the left. And it's the color of the border of this image is turquoise and we want it to be teal. And that risk aversion is describing it sort of cheekily, but that really slows down the speed of the progress of the business and against companies that are moving at full speed with optimal resources, that really is a business challenge because in medicine, you don't just try a new operation. There's a scientific method, there's peer reviews, there are entire processes for beginning and attempting new techniques and in entrepreneurship, the name of the game is do something, iterate, do it again, because testing in focus groups or in hypothetical situations is not relevant. The information that is yielded from that in most entrepreneurial settings is irrelevant by the time you're actually ready to go to market and going to market with something is where you get the real information. So I see those two things in contrast all of the time. And I think you're right that there's not a lot of people who can do both extremely well. No, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good summary of it. I think the other challenge that I see uh, or inherent conflict is in medicine. We're also taught, like you said, you want to evaluate the evidence systematically and you really don't want to offer things to patients that you feel like aren't proven, aren't well-established, have a risk of harm, right? We want to practice evidence-based medicine, something I've heard you talk about on the pod with other guests. And yet that can also come in conflict with the business aspect of medicine, because if you're competing with the other clinics down the street that are offering fancy add-on X and Y and Z, there's obviously a lot of pressure from patients and from the industry, I guess, as a whole to start offering things before they're maybe as proven as you want. And certainly practicing in an academic center, we feel that pressure as well. I see the yin and yang that come from that and that how one could possibly be beneficial to the other or vice versa in that there probably are there's certainly things outside of the clinic space if, if we look on instagram and different fertility solutions that are not evidence-based at all that are not scientifically based that patients are exploring because they're so desperate for a positive outcome 
And then they're coming to the clinic and saying, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you offer this? And I think that I really respect when clinicians hold their ground if they don't believe in, in something that just because it's validated by the market does not mean that, that it should always be offered a clinical solution. And then conversely, uh, I, I just think sometimes that if the market was not driving the response, that clinics would just still be doing the exact same things that they were in 1996, which they already are in some cases, and that the market is what is forcing some providers that would otherwise really not adapt to current demographics and current habits to update and stay abreast. Well, yeah, it's a hard balance because it's the clear answer is not the extreme on either end, right? It's somewhere in the middle. And that's a hard balance to strike. I don't know. All of this is making me think that, you know, the part of the solution here has to be really good partnerships at the top of your organization, right? Like you need, you need the medicine, you need the person with the medical expertise and you need the business expertise too. And it's probably hard to find that in one person a lot of the time. So you're best off, you know, finding a good partner to take on some of those attributes that don't come as naturally to the people doing the medicine. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. One of the things I talk with respect to that partnership, with respect to who owns individual seats of accountability within the organization, I run my company off operating system called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's called EOS for anyone who wants to Google it. And I've written a little bit about it in the blog. The thesis of EOS is that it takes two people to run a company. At the top, there's the visionary. Uh, that's the person that usually maintains the culture, decides the direction of the company, 
is the key relationship on the most important vendors and clients and the and then there's the integrator who if you think of the visionary as the CEO the integrator is the COO the problem for most independent practices that are in business is that they're in both of those seats but they're also in the three main seats that come beneath it which is operations in our field you might split operations between clinic side and lab side but there's what you do operations there's how you uh, make your money sales and marketing the revenue coming in and then there's finance which is money coming in money coming out and so often the practice owner or the principal partner is in all five of those seats as well as they've they're in the, that physician seat of seeing 500 patients a year and doing 150, 200 egg retrievals. And, oh, by the way, they might want to see their family at some point. And I'd see a really big problem of that if you're going to be in, in that top seat, there are some of those other seats that you have to let go of. And I still have some of our clients still pay us by paper check that they're signing themselves. And in, you know, that's to me the case of a, of a CFO seat that that has not been let go of. In most cases, we don't talk to the marketing director when people reach out to us directly because we know that either the marketing director or the practice manager cannot make marketing decisions. They can't sign off on a million dollar marketing program or a hundred thousand dollar marketing program or even a ten thousand dollar marketing program they don't have that decision making authority and that's another seat that has not been let go of by the principal so i'd see that as being one of the biggest impediments to speed and i'm wondering if you see that in other areas of, of more the clinical side or more the administration of care side and not because i see it everywhere on the business side yeah, I think, I mean, I can, it's hard for me to answer that question exactly because I'm sure it's different in every different clinic, how they structure their organization. And where I work is a little bit unique because it is a hospital uh, affiliated clinic. Uh, so there is some extra bureaucracy inherent in that, right? And that our, our staff are hospital employees and the like, but certainly having a clear hierarchy and organizational structure and knowing who does what is foundational to a smooth running organization. And I, I think it's very, it's very true what you said. You need, you need someone at the top who's, who's the big picture person, right? Who's setting the culture and looking at the long-term strategy and the long-term business plan and, that person needs time to do those things and it can't, they then won't necessarily also have time to be doing all the operational things as well. And I think that's exactly what you were saying with when going back to the entrepreneurial risk or the responsibilities that young doctors are assessing is that they see all of this. Like, I don't want to deal with that. I would much either a health system like you did or a large practice group where, you know, they do have that corporate infrastructure in place, the C-suite that's running the practice. And then I just have to be a doctor and maybe I even have to hit the pavement and build relationships with referring providers and build my own practice in that sense. But there are other people taking care of the rest. And I think that is just a lot more attractive to most people. I don't think that 
it's a decision that the previous generation of practice owners would not have made if they were up against the exact same landscape looking at the landscape in the same way. I think that's right. I think that's exactly what it is. It's not that people inherently are averse to starting their own thing. The landscape has been such that, you know, this is the way that the practice has kind of gone. And truthfully, doing good medicine, building your own practice in terms of how you run your own little clinic with your own kind of close group of of immediate staff, reaching out to those referring providers, making those relationships, like, and then also having a life, like that's a lot in and of itself these days. And I think, and in my case, also adding the, the academic component, there's not, it's not like there's a big void in your, in your day to say, well, let's take on this whole nother job basically. Right. Yeah. So I I do think even like for sure, there are a lot of physicians that graduate and they want to practice medicine and that's all they want to do. And that's good. We need those people to practice medicine and to see the patients and to have someone else who can't do the medicine, do the business side of it just inherently makes sense from an efficiency point of view. And even those of us who are more interested in, like I said, interested in the business side of medicine, there's still all these kind of structural and systemic reasons why it doesn't make sense necessarily to go it on your own or start your new thing, but rather to, to somehow integrate yourself into an existing structure and then maybe, you know, get more involved on the, on the business side as you grow and learn. Do you feel that you've gotten the opportunity to do that? Because I remember the concept of being entrepreneurial was important to you, that if you, even if you weren't going to take the risk of starting a brand new IVF practice in Ontario or taking someone else's over, that you did have this interest in the business side or some more interest in practice management. So have you found the opportunity within a large health system, within academia, to be able to explore the entrepreneurial interests that you have? Well, I think just making the transition from fellowship to staff, and now that I've been staff for over a year now, you certainly, just by paying attention and asking the right questions, there's certainly a lot that's out there to learn that I have learned, and I plan to continue that. And it's like anything, like someone usually doesn't walk up to you and say, hey, I'd like to mentor you about this. You have to seek those people out and you have to ask the right questions and pay attention and show an eagerness to learn. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I think it's not like there's a lot of formal mechanisms to learn these sorts of skills. Some of it, obviously, through doing my master's in health services research, some of the courses I took, you know, about organizational behavior and And some of those things were certainly quite applicable to what we're talking about now. But otherwise, I do think it's more about seeking out the people who are in those roles that have those skills that can mentor you and teach you as you go. And just by being in it and by practicing medicine, you learn. What more could we do for residents and fellows to, and maybe even in medical school, maybe you're right, maybe it is at every single level, to provide more business training? You know, I, when I meet these fellows at ECRS uh, or at MS, MRS, I say, here's the writing that we've done. It's hardly a business course. At least here's an ebook and a podcast and a blog about what's going on in the field. But what could we do across or throughout 
education and training to at least give people a certain degree of literacy and education about the business side? Oh, I think it should start in medical school, actually. I agree. I think everyone, there should be a floor, a baseline level of business literacy that we teach to all medical students. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but very basic accounting, very basic how an organization is set up, right? What does an org chart look like? Like very basic stuff so that people have that knowledge. And then um, I think it personally should continue in residency and fellowship tailored more to that specialty. Uh, But I think it can be somewhat streamed so that people can self-identify who's particularly interested in gaining that skill set and people who aren't as much don't need to to train up as much. But I, I do think there should be, you know, business courses and business curriculum integrated into medical training. Like it's to me, it's a little crazy that there isn't any. Right. So, you know, and even even the number of grads who come out who don't know a lot about billing, which isn't business, it's just how you get paid. And a lot of that is taught and learned informally as you go. And so that's even just a small part that could be integrated into a larger curriculum of, you know, fairly basic tenets of being part of a business, running a business, hiring people, how do you make sure your clinic has the supplies it needs, like all this you know, it's not complicated concepts, I don't think, that we need. We, I, I do think that that would be a huge service to physicians everywhere if we could integrate that training from an early stage. And it would certainly help the prospect of starting one's own practice, at least make that option more attractive if people knew how to consider that option. Maybe one of the reasons why it's not so highly considered now is not just because of it being perceived as high risk, but also just being perceived as such a foreign concept. Yeah, and overwhelming, right? If you don't know where to start. Overwhelming. So what would you say to conclude that I haven't asked you about? You'd want to share your thoughts with the audience about recruiting young doctors or new doctors choosing their career path. I mean, I think the thing we haven't talked about at all yet, which figured would come up at some point, would be that push and pull between people's life and people's professional aspirations. And I think that that's also an important aspect not to forget about when we're talking about recruiting and we're talking about what cities people want to go to and people's willingness to take risks which often include financial risks. The demographics of grads today are such that people often have a professional partner as well. And they want to have families if they don't already some of the time. And that's important too. I think we see a lot of the, this is, I don't want to make generalizations or speak for other millennials, but I think we see a lot of the baby boomer generation of doctors above us and how their work in many cases is their life. And while we aspire to be like that in many ways, we also see some of the sacrifices. No, I don't think that's fair. I just think it's just a different, there's like a generational aspect to it. all. That is where I see more of a generational cleavage is that there is certainly more of an interest in 
work-life balance for lack of a, a better or yeah i hate that term too and maybe uh, some older folks might and some folks might say that that an entitlement and maybe it is but i think it's an entitlement to a degree when the expectations are so far off if someone expects to make x amount of dollars per year because another physician is but that other physician is seeing 700 patients a year and doing 400 retrievals by themselves that is a much different life than somebody who wants to do 120 retrievals a year and uh, wants to go to thailand or cartagena or a number of places and that level of travel i think is definitely it's a sub-segment of work-life balance but it's something that i think we all see far more common among millennials I think it, you know, I certainly don't see it as an entitlement. I think people want to feel like they're being treated fairly in terms of job. And I think people don't want to burn out. So I think that's where that's it becomes an entitlement if the expectation is too far one way. Right. Which I agree is not the majority. Like most people think are very realistic in terms of what they they want in terms of I don't I don't even know what to call it because I don't like the work-life balance is kind of to me and not a great phrase but because I don't think it's unrealistic for people to want to have a good relationship with their partner and have a family and spend time with their family uh, if they want and I also don't think it's bad for people to work all the time if that's what they want right people should be able to have some autonomy to try to find a job that gives them, you know, that. And in the end, that will make for happier doctors, which will make for better doctors, which will make for doctors who work longer. And so I think it's actually mutually beneficial, right? Like there's a lot of talk now about burnout and how to combat it. And all of this kind of ties into everything. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's one of our company values work hard and recharge is our fifth company value and because we're really strict about respecting people's time outside of work i understand that all of this can't translate to an rei practice necessarily because people have patience and uh there are urgent situations but just as an example one of our team members was on vacation last week and my expectation with her before she went was you're not going to check your email. You're not going to, you know, come into the project management software and answer our, our questions. We'll get by for a week and a half with you being out. And that's true for all of our team members. It's true after hours that I don't want my team members in bed at 1130, not getting a good night's sleep because right up till where their head hits the pillow there, responding to my emails or client emails. And the way we manage that is by really strict project management. And it also puts more onus on the times that we are working. Like we're not, we're not playing Candy Crush. We're not surfing Facebook and, and going through Sports Center while we're supposed to be working because we have to get that stuff done because we're strict about the other side. So by respecting one, we also respect the other and um i i know that all of those tenants wouldn't translate to managing a practice 
but there really is something to be said for prioritization and how that much more clear priorities become when certain blocks of time are blocked off for different responsibilities or for one's personal life. Yeah, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Not for different industries or different types of businesses, but not obviously for even within different types of medicine or even between different REIs, right? Everyone has to find the way to do this that works for them. And I think what people want is a job that kind of respects those differences, right? Finding the thing that works for them so that when people come to work, they are ready to be there and engaged and working hard and happy. It's complicated, obviously. But it's it's a huge tenet of the discussion that has to happen when we're talking with uh, not just younger doctors and not just younger employees, but I think with the entire team. That it's th- This has become part and parcel of managing teams. Absolutely. Dr. Zwingerman, Rhonda, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me, Griffin. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.